On the Empire Podcast this week, we unchain Django Unchained. We sift through the sessions, we chat to the star of the following, Mr. James Purifoy, and we extract information about Zero Dark Thirty from Catherine Bigelow using any means necessary. We didn't waterboard alone, I cannot stress that enough. Hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that hasn't yet gone into administration. Give it time. I'm joined, as ever, by three learned Empire colleagues. Get them quick before they're sold off for scrap. First up <laughs> is our resident geek queen, a lady who sits in a throne composed entirely of Game of Thrones box sets. It's Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? Um, I'm okay. That sounds much more uh, more comfortable than the throne in Game of Thrones, so that's all right. Yep. And thank you for, with my lawyer hat on, thank you for clarifying that we did not, in fact, waterboard Catherine Bigelow. We didn't torture her in any way, shape, or form. Well, oh, yeah. We did send two dissemblants to, which is a form of torture. It, but it has been regulated against in some countries but not by the Geneva Convention which is the main thing so she offered us a glass of water but in a very friendly way oh, oh that's nice <laughs> what's the opposite of enhanced interrogation <laughs> whatever you did <laughs> uh, you just heard both assemblies are next up we have art house guru Phil Dissemlin who doesn't sit on a throne instead he sits on broken pieces of Michael Hanniger DVDs the pain is a constant reminder of the anguish and suffering of humanity hello Phil yeah. in your face when he picks up an Oscar <laughs> <laughs> what would he be stealing someone else's or hmm? he's not going to win the best director Oscar well you'll have to steal it it's unlikely I lol I should point out that Phil does have a throne of blood I've seen it as flat <laughs> <laughs> how'd you make a throne out of blood Oscar Asawa keep, keep it in the freezer <laughs> Okay. Thank you. I was trying to think of another Throne film. And uh, Throne of Blood, yes, thanks. Damn it, damn it. Anyway, last but almost certainly least is Nick DeSemlin, who refuses to sit in box sets because he downloads all his furniture from Netflix. Hey, Nick. Hey, Chris. <laughs> That's all true. That's, That's all true. Metaphysical joke there. I don't get it, but... <laughs> What's I'm with like... the furniture vibe this week? I don't know. Listen, I wrote this 20 minutes ago. <laughs> I needed something. Okay. Just let it, let it go. Okay. Anyway, uh, I think it was Blaine in Predator who famously said, I ain't got time to bleed. He may also have said, I ain't got time for readers' questions. And if he had, he would have accurately summed up last week's show. But you'll be delighted to know that your comments and questions are back, back, back this week. Hooray! Hooray! Hooray. Uh, first up, we have at Dispatchinator, who asks, why, oh, why, oh, why? <laughs> Do producers insist on killing the realism of a film with the sodding Wilhelm scream? I know it really took me out of the realism of Star Wars <laughs> with the Wilhelm scream, but yes. I would just know, if you're the kind of person who notices a Wilhelm scream specifically, then congratulations, you are, a, you know, a film geek. Well done. I don't think it takes everybody out, maybe, in the same way that it does you, perhaps. No, yeah. Chris, didn't you have an idea once of, of writing a story about a character called Wilhelm scream who yes. just keeps falling off stuff? Yes. <laughs> And that Nick is why we're sitting here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Earning 20% of nothing. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, no, I, I, I like Wilhelm Screams. I'm always makes me happy. I think most, the majority of people don't know what it is. You know, if you mm. go into a multiplex, people aren't really going to be going, oh, it's a Wilhelm Scream. But there was one mm. in The Hobbit, which There's I enjoyed. Hobbit, yeah. There was one in The Raid. Time. There is one in The Raid, right? There is one in The Raid, yeah. Uh, it doesn't take me out of the movie. It's just like, oh, that's quite, quite a bit of fun. I think there is a bit of Wilhelm Scream overkill. I will say that. Every every genre director seems to throw one at their movie nowadays. It would take you out of the film if the film was very, you know, if in Zero Dark Thirty towards the end of the film, <laughs> Osama bin Laden had done a Wilhelm scream, no! <laughs> fallen out the window, yeah, of his compound. <laughs> Come back. Um, is it true that Quentin Tarantino is there a Wilhelm scream in Django? I didn't detect one because there was a rumor that Quentin Tarantino likes to get one in every film. Really? I'm pretty sure there's none in Reservoir Dogs. There is one in Reservoir Dogs. Is there one in Reservoir Dogs? Really? Yes. I thought that he didn't put them in any of his films. Well, that may be true. But no, it's not true because there's one in Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) But as I say, it was a rumour that there was one in um, 
in his other films as Where well. Where is it in Reservoir Dogs? Um, I think it's when somebody's getting run down. Phil might be right. He might be right. We need to we need to figure okay. this out. I need to go back and check, but yeah. I've got a strong feeling there is. Wilhelm, if you're listening, write in. <laughs> let us know. <laughs> or, or, or scream in some way. Just let us know that you're still there and you're still alive. One scream for yes, two screams for no. <laughs> We're worried about you, Wilhelm. Uh, at Daryl H. Smith says, My son is due in March. Congratulations to Mr. At Daryl H. Smith Yay. and his wife, and Mrs. At yeah. Daryl H. Smith. Uh, or might not be married. Hey. Might not be married. No, indeed. There we go. Uh, we're naming him Nolan. Oh, what director do you love enough to name a child after? He says. Mm. Oh. Interesting. Mm. My, my problem is Spielberg isn't a great name for a kid, just as a first name. Spielberg you know? O'Hara. Spielberg O'Hara. It doesn't brilliantly work. No. I like doesn't. Wilder as well. Wilder O'Hara. Hey. Sounds cool, at least. You might turn into a party liaison. <laughs> <laughs> But a sophisticated, witty one. Yeah, well, that would be fine. As long as he's witty, I'm happy. I mean, healthy. Healthy. (laughs) Nick? Herzog. (laughs) Herzog. Because Semlin is already a tough surname to to go around life with. So I think Herzog would would toughen him up. He'd probably probably go and live with bears. That's good, yeah. It's like the theory of the song A Boy Named Sue. Yeah. You know, give him that name, toughen him up. He'll have to fight his whole damn life. Exactly, exactly. So I'm going to have a nephew called Herzog. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> That's great. great. He's my favourite nephew. I don't like the other ones. No. You know, Jeff and, and Steve and, and Sarah. just carries toy Blue. boats over. Phil, what about you? Um, <laughs> I'm resisting the obvious Klimov or Tarkovsky. <laughs> um, I don't know, really. I haven't thought about it. I have thought about this. I've thought about this novel a lot. Uh, I've had conversations with my wife, actually, who has barred me from naming, uh, if we ever have kids, uh, naming one of them Raimi, oh. which I think is a lovely name. For a girl or a boy? I mean, it could it go either way. Matter. It's a good name. It doesn't yeah. matter. Raimi, Chewbacca, and Anfield. Those are the three kids <laughs> I want. I take it all back. But, you know, the thing is, even though their, their real names might be something different, I can still call them that. Right. You call them at early enough from an early age, and they'll begin to think, yes, yeah. Chewbacca is my name. Well, Anfield is my name. Anfield's a girl. We do have a staff member Obviously. who addresses his son as Chuckles, so you we know, do, yeah. it, it it could it could take. Bill Chick says this question, as Brad Pitt would put it, is inevitable. Uh, what's your thought on the demise of my employer H and V? And someone else wrote in to ask about H and V on Blockbuster, and do we think that? You know, shopping for movies is ever going to be is uh, the same again. Essentially, this is, of course, in reaction to the news this week. I don't know if you've noticed it that HMV, the great music and, and film store chain, and Blockbuster, the video rental chain, are now in administration and may not recover, and therefore damaging, I guess, the film buying and browsing forever and ever. Yeah, first of all, it's terrifying. I think for the employees and Bill yep. and Bill and all your you know your your colleagues. Um, we, we have enormous sympathy for you because this is a rotten position to be in. Just the uncertainty is awful. I, I, I hope that something can be worked out and that something can be saved. I mean, a lot of stores that have gone into administration over the last few years have not entirely closed down. Whitards, I think, went into administration a few years ago. Game went um, into administration. It's still, you know, it's still around. They're still there. So, you know, let's hope for the best and let's hope that things keep keep going and, and recover and get better and of course FOP which is owned by H&V there's a, uh, FOP's a wonderful mm-hmm. independent-ish mm-hmm. <laughs> record and, uh, and and film store and there's one just down the road from the Empire offices and we go there all the time and they've got great, great bargains and DVDs and music and they closed down a few years ago and then H&V bought them and revived them and now they may be facing closure again which yeah. sucks but uh, but that that's again uh, I, I guess an, an example of a store that closed and, and then came back to thrive I, I wrote a blog this week on the website about you know, the lost 
started browsing and you know it's something I'm going to regret if there's no HMV there's, there's something wonderfully freeing about as a film fan being able to pop into a store yeah. and browse thousands mm. of titles and just while away half an hour hour lunch break whatever it is and I, I just don't think you get that in an online forum I just don't think if you go on iTunes or Amazon or wherever it is you're, you're, you don't browse in the same way you no. usually mm. have a very specific idea of what you're looking for I have, yeah. to, I have to admit, I, I tended to go in more to browse than to buy, and sometimes to take photos of the prices of yes, the 3D aquarium Blu-rays. Which there's a whole section. That, there was a whole section on the Oxford Street HMV with um, different marine life in 3D, and I'm not sure who was buying it, but they were like 30 or 40 pounds each. Yeah. So that was that was kind of off-putting. Yeah. But amusing. But no, it, it was great. Everyone's grown up with it. Blockbusters, obviously having gone into administration as well. Blockbuster is a very different case as well because uh, lots of people now rent online. There's Netflix, there's iTunes rentals, there's Amazon, there's you know, Love Film. So it, that that model has changed, I think, way, way more than the uh, the HFE model where I would go in. I still go in because I still like to have mm. physical copies of stuff mm. in my flat on my shelf with everything nicely coordinated alphabetically at the moment <laughs> uh, but Helen you do colour coordinate we colour spine this before. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just like that I like having something to hold although weirdly enough on the night that I that the news broke about HMV and I wrote that blog lamenting the, the lost art of browsing I watched Dave as a digital download so I'm not really helping it's that your fault yes yeah, all my uh, fault HMV was the great survivor of the, the high street change wasn't it I mean I remember I'm old enough to remember Tower Records and Virgin Megastores and Art Price. Prices Price. and Woolworths and endless kind of emporiums filled with CDs and, and vinyl and cassettes and laser discs yeah. laser discs and uh, it's just an, uh, it's a whole lifetime ago and, and I'm really I mean I read your blog and I, I really hit the spot for me because I went into HMV on Monday just before the news came through about the administration and did exactly that I mean I bought some DVDs but it's just a kind of a lovely process to go and look through the look through this massive selection mm. and they always had great, I mean the one on Oxford Street that was closest to us they had a great selection of different things and different different categories and everything you can imagine um, and you're right the kind of online algorithms logarithms or whatever that they generate to kind of stimulate your browsing just they're not the same they're very linear and they're kind of they just you like one Billy Wilder film twice more Billy Wilder mm. film it doesn't really humans don't really work that way and I don't think that can be replicated online and you know I think um, going back to uh, to Bill who asked the question you know a lot of people Bill's probably incredibly knowledgeable about films you don't get that either you go into a shop and they add value by chatting to you and suggesting things mm. and giving recommendations and it is I mean I said this in my blog as well a number of times we as a magazine have been trying to oh we need to, we need to grab a shot from something and you can go into a store and instantly buy something or you know that idea if I'm going to nip and, nip and age and fee for example on Christmas Eve uh, prior uh, I suddenly had a, a hankering to watch Die Hard 2 on Blu-ray I didn't own Die Hard 2 on Blu-ray so obviously <gasps> it's not going to be delivered in time it's Christmas Eve so I dragged my wife God bless her into you know London central London on Christmas Eve and we went to H&F and first store was sold out but they were so helpful and they said oh well you know try the next one and we went to the next one we got it and you wouldn't do that you know if you were trying to you know just order something off Amazon mm-hmm. so that's a story about you hauling your, your wife around London <laughs> no it's a, it's a story about the availability of no, no I'm kidding I'm kidding of course okay sorry Chris alright poor wife on so many levels and one day we'll be dragging Raimi and Chewbacca and Anfield with this as well can you imagine uh, but yeah you know, hearts go out to all the 8,000 or odd employees of Blockbuster and H&F and we hope that you guys can pull through uh, next question is from at Bory Orden uh, who asks do you have any pet hates in film mine is unnecessary tire squeal and always perfect hair <laughs> interesting 
This could take a while, this one. Mm-hmm. I've got oh, a gosh, yeah. This could go on forever. I mean, th- there's there's lots of things that, that film characters do that never happen in real life. And sometimes, just sometimes you wish they would. You wish somebody would pause and lock their car. I mean, fair enough, the guy who's <laughs> in, engaged in an active police chase, okay. But the person who gets out of the car to, you know, go and walk his date to the front door... Wouldn't you lock your car? I don't know. Are all these people living in a really trusting world where no one ever... And the other way around, when there is a chase and someone will just jump on a bike that's parked and just, like, Mm. like at the end of The Bourne Legacy. Yeah. And you're like, you know, some films get away with it because they're ridiculous, but when it's something like The Bourne franchise where they're trying to be realistic, you just go, come on. People don't just leave their keys in the ignition. Mm. Skyfall did that as well, didn't it? Beginning of Skyfall. Yeah. With the JCB. And there's the, uh, you left the keys in your JCB door. <laughs> um, I'm going to steal one of one of your bugbears, Chris, the, mm-hmm. the changing locations mid-conversation thing. Yeah. And I guess that's inevitable to an extent. That's to, okay. to, break, to break things up. If you're having a conversation in a movie that would take about, what, two, three minutes, but they're like in three different places, yeah. just to stretch it out. To Depends make it- how it's done. I watched Scott Pilgrim vs. The World again the other night, and they do that the whole way through, but it's done very, very stylishly. Almost kind of as a as a thing, like every mm. sentence is broken up by well, being in a completely different place. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, and also in the, with those characters, you kind of believe that they'd sort of trail off into nothing and then pick it up again a little bit later. So sure. a coherent conversation might actually happen across three different locations. Uh, people not saying goodbye on the phone—that's yes. that's a big thing for me. Uh, I think the only person I, I can remember who gets away with it is Pacino and Heat, who constantly just hangs up on people. And gets away with it because he's Vincent Hannon and you know he's cool. Uh, but you know, have you ever? spoken to someone on the phone and either had them hang up on you or hung up on someone you would say you absolutely rude bastard you'd probably hang back you'd probably ring back and harangue them for 10 minutes how <laughs> dare you not say goodbye to me who do you think you are I'd love to see a film where they just cut to the other end and the guy's going hello hello <laughs> hello hello and calls him back I think I lost you no 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 I'd finished I hung up on you <laughs> um on a kind of soundtrack note um, films where they have a song where the lyrics directly oh yes reflect what's happening on screen we were just talking about Flight and the, yeah. the soundtrack is very very on the nose in that but also uh, Killing Them Softly which I saw recently mm-hmm. when Brad Pitt turns up they have The Man Comes Around which seems to play every time <laughs> I think and, uh, there's a song called Heroin there's a very famous heroin song anyway in Flight as well with the, the yeah uh, there's still underground several yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, another one is this a technical thing bad ADR so uh, when you have uh, a scene and you have a shot of someone and you see an actor from behind and their dialogue continues to overlap over the scene but they're clearly either not speaking or not saying you can clearly tell they're not saying the words they're meant to be saying so don't like that uh, also and this is a weird example that just sticks in my head for some reason I don't know why but when I saw Legally Blonde for the, for the only time sure, sure. in 2001 the only time that year I've seen it a hundred times since <laughs> of it, course you have there's a scene where uh, Reese Witherspoon and Luke Wilson are driving uh, towards it's just a driving shot it's just a stabbing shot of them driving up to a place and uh, the director Robert Lichetti just drops dialogue over the top but they're not speaking in the car they're not speaking to each other it's just clearly just inept did you not know that to get into Harvard you have to be a ventriloquist <laughs> really yeah it's on the entrance form that's how I felt then isn't it Helen <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. That's our hat hates. Uh, if you have any other pet hates, can't quite like that question, send them into us and we'll discuss them next week. Uh, to get in touch with us, you can Facebook us. Uh, we're Empire Magazine. You can tweet us on Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Please use the hashtag Empire Podcast or you can email us. Yes, we do have email podcast at empireonline.com. 
Time for our first interview of the pod now. James Purefoy has been able to effortlessly traverse the world of cinema and TV over the years with notable turns, usually wielding a sword bigger than himself in the likes of Rome, Resident Evil, the original and best, Solomon Kane, Ironclad, the original and best, and A Knight's Tale. He's back on a small screen this week in Sky's new series, The Following, in which he plays a master serial killer whose army of acolytes plague FBI agent Kevin Bacon. Uh, Purefoy popped in recently, thankfully without his sword, at least as far as, far as we can see, to talk to myself and Nick. Slight word of the wise, we had a technical problem and the sound isn't quite what it should be. Thankfully, iPhone to the rescue. And Purifying is such fun, he's pure joy, actually. Oh dear. Oh no. Uh, we had to share the interview with you here. Enjoy. In the following, you play a guy whose name isn't very evil, Joe Carroll. Yeah, very but, simple. Yeah, quite banal. Yeah, quite banal, not a terribly evil name, but he is essentially the most evil man the world has ever seen. Is that, is that I find thing? him the most, yeah, you know, I mean, bad guys, out of all the bad guys I've ever seen, I find him the most, because he's so nihilistic, he is so worshipping of death itself, in such a sickening, frightening way, you know, he celebrates death, he believes that there is nothing more beautiful than a beautiful woman dying. So let's just go back a bit. He's an aficionado of, um, of, of Edgar Allan Poe. He's mm-hmm. a college professor. He's British. He was a college professor uh, ten years ago before the show started. And then he started killing young women. But not only is he... Uh, <laughs> I can never quite believe I'm saying this. He's not, he's not your average serial killer. <laughs> He is also a man who has found a way. He's, you know, he's in prison at the beginning of the first episode, and he's two weeks away from lethal injection. So he's had ten years to think up a plan while he's been in prison to get out of prison and achieve a relatively simple objective. You know, the fact that he's in a maximum security prison, two weeks away from getting the lethal injection and having killed fourteen young women, makes it slightly complicated. One of the things he's brilliant at, Joe Carroll, is if there is one thousandth of a percent of a serial killer in you, uh-huh. he's very good at manipulating it and teasing it out and bringing it out of you and turning you into the serial killer you always kind of knew you should be. And did you immerse yourself in serial killer stuff to prepare for? Yeah, I did. I did a lot of stuff. A lot, and I still do actually. There's so much material out there. You can, you know, you can't get through it all in. in probably under a year I don't know but the first week when I was asked to do it I um, I sat in a hotel room in, in Santa Monica with my laptop and for 16 hours a day pretty much for a week I sat watching interviews with serial killers listening there's an awful lot of audio of serial killers talking on the internet I didn't pay any attention to any fiction at all um, because you know no point doing that you're just regurgitating a facsimile of somebody else's performance but I did do uh, yeah a lot of documentaries and a lot of proper actual video recordings of people talking you know trying to just get an idea of why why they do what they do or why they think they do what they do which is the important so if there was one model uh, did you model uh, Joe or anyone in particular well I guess Ted yeah, but I'm on first name terms. <laughs> Hilarious is that? <laughs> There's Ted, of course. Uh, Ted, I guess, I mean, there are a number of others um, that we took bits from, or I took bits from, but some of them are alive. And one of the things I learned about serial killers is that they are pretty much all crazed, narcissistic egomaniacs who would like nothing more to find out, um, you know, that an actor in a big TV show had based themselves entirely on them or even partly on them so I don't mention the live ones but Ted Bundy is is dead so playing someone (laughs) of that nasty over such a long period of time on a TV series Mm. does that start to affect how the cast and crew 
No, I don't know. They're kind of fine with me. It does start affecting me a little bit every now and then. You know, you play a particularly dark, grisly scene. You know, just sometimes there's just a bit of a taste of ashes. Darkness and death and ashes in your mouth at the end of the day. Do you have a way of clearing that? I, you know, British acts are pretty good, actually. You know, by and large, what I've noticed, uh, turning it on on action and off on cut, you know, it's really, you know, get that death row costume off me, I get it in the wardrobe, in the dressing room, and leave and go and have a bottle of wine fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really ambitious show because you have Dexter, but even mm -hmm. that is sort of self-contained arcs and they seem and to have also got Dexter into has, you know, Dexter's like a sort of midwife, he's like a community service, isn't he? In comparison to Joe Carroll, you know, at least Jax is killing people that the kind of the audience kind of want to see dead anyway. There are other serial killers and all that kind of stuff. There's nothing redeeming about Joe, you know, apart from he's got an elegant turn of phrase. So there's, there's at the moment there's lots of Brits on TV shows in the States. I mean, obviously Damien, Damien Lewis on Homeland mm -hmm. and Andrew Lincoln on The Walking Dead. Yourself. Johnny Lee Miller. Johnny Miller, Elementary, Dave, Matthew Reese, uh, Dave Morrissey, yeah. I mean, the list goes on. Jason Isaacs, you Jason know, Isaacs, doing a wake, you know. And obviously this shoot's in New York, but I imagine there's a little enclave of yeah. British actors just hanging out in the same places, going to the same. I positions. know, but the weird thing is, these are all people who've known each other for years. You know, uh, Jason and I were at, in the same year at drama school. He's the godfather to my child, and I've known Johnny since he was 16, like 23 years, something like that. Uh, Damien and I have known each other forever, and you know, and they're all people who have been, you know, sitting around my kitchen table for Sunday lunch. Um, and so that's weird. That's the odd thing is seeing these people slowly graduate to not just playing little parts on American TV, but leading gigantic series. And it's a weird phenomenon that's happened. Are you a big TV watcher? Do you watch The Walking Dead? Do you watch Apart from Game? No, I watch. I have. I haven't watched Walking Dead. Um, uh, yeah. You know, I spent so much time being killed by zombies in Resident Evil. I've kind of done my zombie thing now. Um, so uh, no, I haven't watched that. But but Homeland, Breaking Bad, those are my two massive shows that I can't get enough of. So are, you, are you still reading film scripts, or are you now like I'm in TV mode? And I'm no, 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 no. It's like yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I call it, no, uh, I no, I won't be doing that anymore. No, of course I'll be reading film scripts. Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess you know, I don't, you know, I, you're so involved when you're doing a show like this. It's so big and so it takes up so much of your time that you don't. I haven't even had a conversation with my agents about what happens in April or May next year. You know, and I haven't even discussed it. Because there's been talk for a while about trying to get a Solomon Kane two going and uh, add two going. Yeah. And I know Jonathan English was working on that in his spare time, but is there any, any word news? I, I, uh, Ironclad 2 would be unlikely, I think, for me. Uh, and not at least until they've paid me properly for Ironclad 1. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's just get that dealt with first. Did you uh, at least get a free Blu-ray? <laughs> yeah, I got a free Blu-ray and a sword. You were paid know, in swords. That was about it. But you keep your swords. You, you kept your sword from Ironclad and you kept your sword from Solomon. Yes, Ironclad, Solomon, Mark Antony. Oh uh, Various others I've got. I think I've got about 11 or 12 swords now or at home, <laughs> something like that. But it's the ironclad sword is the one that people get most, whoa, God, look at that, that's amazing. Mm. That's the one they get most excited about. I had a wonderful experience, actually, that was hilarious, was uh, that I, after, just after I'd done ironclad, I got some stairs that go up to the front of my house. So quite steep stairs, and there's a front door. And one night I was in my bed and I could hear these chain thing and I've got this quite nice motorbike outside and the bike was sitting there and I went over to my front window and I looked through the Venetian blind and there was a guy pulling out of a bag 
giant pair of wire cutter, big pliers. I thought, you know, he's going to try and nick my bike. I can't believe it. I'm, I'm staggered. I'm naked as well. Well, of course. Of course, obviously. I just got to bed. It's like half past one. And I think, all right, what the fuck am I going to use? I range around the house looking, and then I spy Flo, which is the six, six foot broadsword. We called it Flo because um, it's called Florence. We called it Florence because you had to go with the flow with this sword because you couldn't stop it. Once you set it into motion, it wouldn't stop unless it killed someone. So uh, I, ah, oh, yeah, nice, okay. I get flow out. I turn on, give myself some backlight. If there's one thing I've learned about making movies, give yourself a backlight. <laughs> so I stick on some backlight behind me, really bright lights. I open the front door and I stand there, I'm butt naked with flow in my hand, the six and a half, six foot broadsword. And I go, hey. And he looks at me and I go, huh? I go, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And he looks at me. And just this, obviously, it's not only is it a man with a sword, it's a naked man <laughs> with a very big sword in his hand. And he, he, he left, he just scarpered, <laughs> ran it down the street so fast, leaving everything. I still have the wire cutters in my tool shed. So it's nice that I got something off him. So uh, John Carter was an interesting mm. experience for you, was it? Being in the movie that... that that's you know, it's a kind of a, a mystery, isn't it? I mean, it's a... Uh, did you see it? Did you hate it? He doesn't like it. I thought it was not as bad as Transformers Four. I mean, please somebody tell me. Well, we haven't seen Transformers Four yet. Or three. I'm, I'm guessing you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what what I say about the film is, you know, however bad it was, it's not as bad as the other as films that seem to get by without without so much as a you know as a as a, as a niggle into the box office and you know make hundreds of millions yeah, of dollars. Sure. I mean, that's I'm a big fan of. Andrew Stanton's. Mm. It was a bit of a mystery what happened, it's just what happened, I don't quite understand what happened with it. And of course gutted because all they would say to me when we were filming it in you know, the guide games is you wait until the, the sequel, you've got so much to do in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean it's right, you and Taylor, it's going to be like Butch Cassidy and Sundance, it's so cool, we got some great scenes for you. And we're shooting six months in Hawaii. But it must be strange being on the inside of a movie like that because it was, you could see it coming, you could see people sharpening their knives from, from a distance. Yes, well that was, the, absolutely, I saw it coming, you could see it coming two months before it opened, three months before it opened, you could see that they were sharpening their knives, and you go, oh, what's, why, 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 why is that? What's he done? I often think there's some sort of hive mind that just decides that it's someone's time yeah. to get it. Yeah, I think and that's, that's just, and that, that it was his time. Yeah. It's, it's just horrible when the good guys get struck. Okay, it's movie news time now. Helen. Hello. What movie news do you have for us? I have movie news that I literally never thought would happen, and not in a good way. Um, they are planning a sequel to Hot Tub Time Machine, which I thought was one of the worst comedies I've genuinely ever seen. I really I really hated it, <laughs> beyond how much I should have hated it, I think, but I just it just really drove me up the wall. Um, anyway, they're planning a sequel. Um, they are not expecting John Cusack to return. <laughs> Heard a shock, but apparently the other three are back. I was amazed John Cusack did the first one, I'll be I know, honest with you. I didn't understand it. I think his maid directed it, didn't he? Steve uh, Pink. Maybe so. Yeah. Well, Steve Pink is potentially directing this again. All, all this is potential and up in the air and, and sort of airy-fairy at the moment. But there's talk of Ro Rob Corddry, who, of course, starred in the first one, also writing this. Maybe that's a good thing, because he's a funny guy. Um, Phil and I saw him in Warm Bodies the other day. You know, we like him very much. So, you know, uh, I guess it can't, from my point of view, be much worse. So maybe just, this is good. Who is craving this movie? 
who is out there saying, please let them make up? I the think it does have. It does have fans. It does, have, people, it does have a fan. Fans. <laughs> I have a hot no, tub. They have, they have jets. <laughs> Not fans. Oh. oh. <laughs> Come on. If John Cusack is replaced by the raccoon from the Raven, I'm in. That's, that's pretty much the only oh, that news, that lasting news that can... Uh, no, this is not good, is it? It's not There's good. nothing good about it. I, I wasn't so much Chevy surprised Chase, by the new. Chevy Chase is not coming back either. No, I apparently. don't know. I can't imagine that he would. Um, Chevy Chase was probably the sole thing that I enjoyed about the first mm. one. Yeah, I me can't too. remember anything about it, to be honest. Not even Chevy Chase stuff. I can only remember the bit where Craig Robinson turns the camera and goes, It's a hot tub time machine. That was in the trailer. But that was in the trailer. <laughs> I haven't seen this film. I do have a t shirt. <laughs> but I haven't seen the film um, what happens they get in a hot tub and they go back to their high school they days they go back to the 1980s when they went when three of them went on a, a trip to this ski resort so they find themselves at that ski resort in that week Clark Duke who's the youngest of them obviously wasn't actually born then but may have been conceived that week oh. by Rob Cordry is uh, I, that would um, be a massive spoiler right so, yeah. it's hot tub it time machine yeah, for God's right. we can't spoil that movie they've already <laughs> spoiled it I don't know I for one am excited about this I think there's been great advances in hot tub time machine technology <laughs> since the first movie and I'm excited to see what the new one has in store the technology has finally <laughs> caught up with their vision <laughs> The hot tub is not even hotter. I also want to see what the title could be. Is it simply going to be Hot Tub Time Machine 2? Or is it going to be another Hot Tub Time Machine? Or, oh my, it's a Hot Tub Time Machine? Who knows? You could hot go tub. anywhere. Wow. Hot Tub Time Machine. You've turned hotter, me around, Chris. A hotter tub time machine. That's it. Wow. There we go. I, I, I regret everything I've said. Like, this sounds amazing. Helen, as well, you should. Uh, Phil, what have you got for us? Well, I've got two two things briefly. Um, last, um, first of all, I'm going to redact my news story from last week because I came <laughs> on last week, and this is embarrassing journalistically. But last week there was talk the Robo Apocalypse was going to be put on, but it's going to be shelved for some time with Steven right. Spielberg having issues with budget and story and other things and robots, etc. And um, it turns out that that may not be the case. It may be just a short delay. He says that he's had an epiphany. He thinks he's cracked the structure. We were talking about how difficult it is to kind of channel all of these different narrative threads from the book into one sort of post-apocalyptic sci-fi um, he thinks he may have done that mm. so six to eight months is a figure that's been kind of mooted so it could be this will still be his next project um, watch this space mm. although knowing Spielberg six to eight months he could probably knock out two or three films before in that absolutely time. So it's possible basically when Phil says watch the space he means come back next week and he will further redact <laughs> this yes. story well, it's my, off again I have two kind of stories as well which are linked to Phil's and that they're both Spielberg properties so you don't know I'm what gonna, my second story is yet oh Hang on, let me do oh. my stories, then we'll come back to your second story. Okay. After my second, is my story second story relates to any of your stories? Do you know? You don't this know. Is this is this is just like the omen predicted, brother turning against brother <laughs> until man exists no more. Um, what I was going to say was, Jurassic Park Four has been confirmed for next summer. Oh, it is literally Whoa. coming out next summer. Universal's announced, and also today there has been talk of Gremlins coming back. Dun 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 dun. Jesse Spielberg produced. Um, yeah, so uh, that's kind of exciting news. I think I'm more excited about the Jurassic Park news. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, the Gremlins reboot seems like a, a rumour, doesn't it? It seems like some studio executives got drunk and stumbled upon a copy of Gremlins and went, yeah, let's reboot this. But apparently <laughs> Spielberg has the ultimate say over whether it gets rebooted. I personally think you just get Joe Dante, don't you? You just let him do whatever he wants to do with it. He did have an idea for Gremlins 3 that he's talked about over the years, didn't he? But they never really gave him the money to do it. So if you're going to do anything Gremlins, I think that's mm. probably the way to go. Having said that, the thing with Gremlins is, you know, unlike Ghostbusters, which is really sort of 
dependent on the cast returning on Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd all those guys even if it's just to hand over the yep. torch to, uh, to a new team um, the Gremlins Sack Gallagher was in here and we you know we think we love the first two movies we think he's great but Hollywood won't say it's Sack Gallagher or nobody you know mm. no one at all so they'll just reboot it with a new cast yeah Bill Murray should uh, join Gremlins 3 just to annoy <laughs> everyone on Ghostbusters 3. Yeah. There should be a scene where he puts a Gremlins through a fax machine and then sends it to Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> that didn't happen. That did not happen. Um, but no, I mean, Jurassic Park 4, I've been thinking a lot about this. This kind of came out towards the end of last week. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting because it's being written by the two um, people who, who wrote Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which not everybody loved, but I certainly thought it was great. I yeah. thought it was one of the most entertaining it was actually uh, Tarantino's favourite film of that year, I believe. He just said so on the Howard Stern show. Um, but the big thing is, is there more story there? Because they cannot do another sequel yeah, where they go worry. to another island. Mm. That's the worry. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. My, my personal feeling in this one is that Spielberg will direct it himself. That's my hope, anyway. Well, that's what I yeah. thought, but the Robo Apocalypse news suggests otherwise, doesn't it? But he's just basically said he's delayed it, and I think that the two new stories broke within 24 to 48 hours of each other. I think it's had too much of a coincidence, really. He pushes one project back, and then suddenly Jurassic Park 4 gets announced. We know how quickly he can make those, so I don't know. We'll Ooh, see. Interesting. I, yeah. Mm, yeah. That would be the only thing that really gets me excited about that. I wasn't a huge fan of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, so I'm, I'm not excited, excited by the screenwriters. Um, so where would you like to see it go, Jurassic Park 4? Butlins. I can only see two <laughs> options, but this might be why I'm not a Hollywood screenwriter. Um, one is that they there is they go back to an, an island and do a bit of a rehash. Corfu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Magaluf. Dinosaurs hit Magaluf. <laughs> start raving. Or the, the other way around, which is the dinosaurs come to mainland America or, mm. or somewhere else, and you have a more of a kind of invasion movie. But Spielberg's always talked about the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park as being animals and not monsters, yeah. which suggests that he won't want to turn it into an army, you know, strafing T-Rexes with missiles kind of film. True. So I don't know. I, I don't know. But I am excited that there is a script that obviously people like enough to yeah. pin it down to a release date in a year's time. If you get Goldblum back on board, I'm happy as well. I'm not even so fussed about that. I, you know, I, I just think as long as they have a great high concept it's, idea. It is interesting. It occurs to me that there's a, there's a link between these two films which is probably Westworld, another Michael Crichton story about when technology or animals mm. goes awry. And Jurassic Park is kind of like a Westworld update. Very much so, um, yeah. So you can see a common thread for Spielberg in, in that he's interested in those kind of sci-fi tales. Um, i love to see both of those in his hands. I'm not sure about Jurassic Park and anyone else's. I'm having a great idea. He's had, <laughs> Sir, he's had Lord Richard Attenborough, obviously in the Jurassic Park franchise, Who's going to go, who's going to have a better reason to go to one of those islands than Steve Sir David Attenborough? Attenborough. Oh. oh my god! It's going to be amazing. Oh my god, that's amazing! I've cracked it. Well done. That's Jurassic incredible. Park Four is found footage of David Attenborough's tragic death at the hands of Velociraptors. No, he'd is be the hero. Oh, he'd be the hero. Yeah, he'd be the hero. Thank. Alright. <laughs> Sir David, we're talking about good Absolutely. Lord. Apologies. Apologies. Uh, Phil, would you like? What was your uh, second? I, I just a brief one on the glo- on the Golden Globes. A um, Oh yeah, they <clears throat> happened. Sh- shameless jamboree of chancing journalists. I mean, a, a esteemed awards show which took place this weekend, and uh, it was a Ben Affleck um, show really because he won Best Director, yeah. and Argo picked up Best Film. Um, it's worth stressing that this is in no way um, indicative of what may or may not happen at the at the Oscars. Certainly, since he wasn't baffling. Well, he's going to struggle on that one. <laughs> he is. But let's bear in mind the Descendants won Best Motion Picture Drama. Um, Les Mis, 
the least comic of the musical or comedy films I think ever to win an but, award but the, the most musical. musical but the most yeah. musical exactly so that um, was almost harmony it really was harmony best thing to say about it apart from Ben and Les Mis and all the other winners was um, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey who yeah. were amazing goddesses what was the best joke I thought the best joke was the um, James Cameron torture joke I which it was, was stupe- stupendously on the nose. Um, did 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 uh, it was about did you not say I trust anyone uh, anyone's take on torture that's been married to James married Cameron, to James Cameron for three, three years. years? I think my favourite was probably um, when she saluted Anne Hathaway's performance in Les Mis. Uh, she said, "You know, it was it was astonishingly moving. Uh, I, I haven't seen someone that lonely and abandoned and lost since you were on stage with James Franco at the Oscars, <laughs> um, which I thought was lovely." Chris showed me an astonishing video of uh, people laughing at a joke, and they, they were cutting to different celebrities laughing, and then it cut to Tommy, Tommy <laughs> Jones, who sings, staring at the stage with nothing but contempt. That has now become, I believe, an internet meme with uh, Tommy Lee Jones staring unimpressed at a variety of things. How quickly the the memes move. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, maybe Jurassic Park Four could be a you know people being attacked by memes <laughs> on the on the uh, island. Uh, okay, well we're moving on. Thanks for your news, guys. Uh, time for another interview. Uh, Catherine Bigelow, as we've mentioned, uh, she started off as a director of visually stunning and demented, quirky action flicks like Near Dark, Strange Days, and of course the genius of Point Break. Uh, but she's reinvented herself over the last couple of years as a director of visually stunning, hard hitting, realistic action movies like the Best Picture winning The Hurt Locker and next week's. Oscar-nominated hunt for Osama Bin Laden movie Zero Dark Thirty. Nick and Phil, as you've heard, went along this week to ask her about that. John Barrowman and more besides. They've just done a fist bump, a brotherly fist bump. It's a beautiful moment. Well, we're delighted to welcome Catherine Bigelow, an Oscar-winning director to the Empire podcast. Thank you. We wanted to start off with a bit of a hot-button topic and something you're probably a little tired of talking about by this stage in the promotional process, but John Barrowman. Um, <laughs> how did that come about? Because <laughs> we have uh, we have a lot of love for him over in these parts. Well, I share that love. I, it came about through a casting process. You know, I was looking for somebody who could uh, play that particular part and give it an authority and a weight, and in a obviously a very um, short amount of time to convey all of that. And he's an extraordinary talent, and. Um, I really enjoyed working with him and he fit the bill. Just to talk kind of more broadly about the casting process, because you mentioned there's like 120 speaking parts in this film, yeah. which I guess that the, the next after that would be, would it be Point Break or Strange Days for you in terms of... Oh, nothing comes close no, to it. No, nothing Nothing, comes nothing, nothing. I was casting every day of this movie, even while I was shooting. Even really? to the last, almost virtually the last week of production, I was still casting. Tell us about Jessica Chastain, because this is quite, I mean, different from The Tree of Life, for one thing, and Help as well. Interestingly enough, with Jessica, she first came to my attention uh, when Rafe showed me a rough cut of Coriolanus and the character of Virgilia, and it was just such a gentle, delicate, highly nuanced performance that just leapt off the screen. And so, um, even though that's a, you know, this character is quite a departure from that, when Mark was developing the script and, and um, you know, looking at, at the sort of rigor of her scenes, realizing, A, I needed an incredibly well-trained actress, and B, somebody who had a kind of ferocity and vulnerability at the same time, and could own those sequences with a, a, a really solemn, believable authority. 
she was my first choice Someone else who's great in it is Chris Pratt, and I'm a fan of the TV show Parks and Recreation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Were you aware of his work in that show? Oh Did yeah, you? oh yeah. I knew about him there, and then I think what um, what kind of was decisive for me was his performance in Moneyball, and I thought there's I don't know there's kind of a, a, a swagger and again a kind of an, an interesting humanity that he's uh, able to um, convey. Just going back to Parks and Rec, it's interesting that you that you watch that because I think you you kind of have a, a bit of an image of someone who's very serious. It's kind of hard to imagine you watching TV comedy. Oh, but perhaps. it's so smart! It's so smart. I mean, a, a comedy requires such a, a incredible intelligence um, that it fascinates me. But Chris Pratt is, um, I, I think, is a profound talent, and um, as Joel Edgerton, you know, the two of them together. And again, this is a very you know, it's a fairly finite sequence. And so, you know, they don't have the luxury of the entire movie to kind of um, pull you into their thrall. And so in a very short period of time, you know, they need to capture you, captivate you, beg your emotional investment, and then let go. And, you know, that's that's requires, a, a, that's a tremendous skill set. You know, I'm in awe when I watch an actor work. You know, I... I I find it almost mystifying. It's like watching a painter paint. You know, why that color there? I'm enamored of my cast, as you can tell. Does that make it difficult to give them... Direction. No. No. No, because what happens in the, in the process of um, both the research and uh, rehearsals is even if it's an accelerated period of time, you develop a kind of trust, a trust that brings you a shorthand. I mean, with Jennifer, you know, and some of those sequences out at um, Camp Chapman at, at the Coast uh, Forward Operating Base, you know, sometimes I could just look at her and just with a glance, I mean, we could communicate. And there, might, there would be a, a beautifully precise, subtle adjustment. And that was, um, those are some, I suppose, some of my proudest moments. Mm. And the crew, too, you kind of work with the crew in very much in the same way. You kind of... You have to earn trust, you know, and hopefully it happens. But once you do, I mean, you know, I'm working with four cameras. They're constantly in motion, and the cast has to trust that they are going to be captured. It's a very different way of shooting. I don't set up like a two-shot and then a medium and then a close-up, and so you know what I'm shooting, and he knows what I'm shooting. You never know. Have you done that since sort of near dark, since day one? Pretty much, pretty much. Certainly in... Uh, I was developing it near dark and then point break and then I've been developing it all along it, it kind of came to its uh, fruition I'd say the most in Hurt Locker but constantly keeping the camera alive and one it was interesting Jason Clark said something in a Q&A a month and a half ago and he said uh, you know you, you, it's very much like theater you know you ha- you're always on the minute you hit the set and someone says action it's game on until the end of the day. I'm curious with what you were saying about finding acting, the profession of acting, mystifying or great acting. Did you ever try your hand at, at oh, doing never, some acting yourself? Never, Not even at never, school? Never, never. No, I get too self-conscious. I, I love being behind the camera. I love being in the sort of the dark recesses of the corner, in the shadows. Going forward. Yes. Triple What's frontier. Next? What next? What next I for you? And, and let me put that in the context a break, of... A break, a dive trip. Right, okay. <laughs> I like that idea. Nice. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Because <laughs> it's been fully intense, hasn't it? I mean, you turn this film around. Full on. Very quickly. And the press has been 
I don't know if you have an adjective to describe this this press trip, but I imagine fraught with spring. But I want to ask you a question, both of you. You know movies. Have you experienced a film in recent memory that has generated quite so much? Uh, the the volume of this um, no conversation. I, I, it's funny because I was thinking earlier. I was just looking at the I mean, relative. I was trying to find reference. The relative length of the Wikipedia entries for the Oscar Oscar nominated films this year, and and you win by a mile. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it, uh, we spoke before Christmas, and and you'd already start, and people were already saying things about the film before they'd seen it, before you'd made it. it must test you. In, in, in well, it, ways you're not kind of expecting, I suppose. It, it does. You grow some some uh, very thick skin. Hopefully, I don't look too different. But um, but on the other hand, having a film that I think uh, stimulates a pretty important conversation is you know is is something to be proud of. But on the other hand, you know I do feel that that you have to um, to deny history is to relegate yourself to repeat it. And, you know, if we had omitted torture scenes in the movie, I think that would have been um, meant whitewashing the past. And I don't think anybody is debating the fact that the detainee program existed in the early days of this operation. So, you know, my hope is rather than challenge the film or the filmmakers, you know, one challenges those individuals that perhaps put these policies in motion. And that is maybe a better directed argument. But in the meantime, you know, I'm the chew toy, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I came out of the film feeling like it was down to me. It was on me as a viewer to kind of make up my mind about whether it was worth. Brilliant, brilliant. Th- that, that struck me as what you were trying to say with the film. And I've been surprised that people haven't maybe seen it through that prism a little bit well, more. Well, people, it, it's interesting. What happens is it, it feels like it, People want to oversimplify the story. It's a very complex story, the details of which will be debated for decades, in my humble opinion. But um, there's a tendency to oversimplify it and really want a black and white, this is it and this isn't it. You know, it's very, and it's not that. It's it's extremely complicated and um, fraught with a, a kind of, you know, a lot of emotionality. I mean, you know, you know, one example of which are the families of, of those affected by 9-11. I mean, it's a very, very complex story. It is. I, I just wondered if it's if it makes you want to do something a bit sort of less complex for the next movie, perhaps. Do you have an idea of where you'd like to go next? You know, I, I, I've obviously been asked that and I don't really because... Um, I, you know, I do need to decompress after this one and, and uh, hope it'll reveal itself. But I think what is exciting to me and a challenge to me and, and, and an aspect I will always uh, pursue is topicality, you know, since Hurt Locker, you know, I think. And that's another example of, of a situation where, um, you know, there was some conversation around that, nothing to the volume of this, but, you know, that, that it promoted that engagement. Just as a final question, yes. I had the uh, the good fortune to go to Gary Busey's house recently to interview him, where he has a Point Break poster up in his living room. What was that experience like, directing <laughs> Gary Busey? It was an interesting experience, and I have to say, you know, I was sort of, um, I was pretty unseasoned. That was my third, fourth film, and uh, I wasn't really ready for, you know, he's kind of a, a, a wall of nature, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely got a lot of power there but um, 
extremely talented. Talent always just wins me over. You know, I'll I'll find a way through whatever um, you know, whatever barriers there may be or obstacles there may be. And in his case, he's just you know, he's just so full of of. There's so much willpower there, and you just. I guess through respect and um, hopefully a mutual respect and, and you get the job done. We're going to review Zero Dark Thirty next week, but this week we're running our BDI, or Late Era Oasis Eye, if you will, over the new releases you can catch at your local flea pit. And let's start off with the biggest by far, the return of Quentin Tarantino with Django Unchained. Like Inglorious Bastards, it's a controversial and blood-soaked look back at history, but this one is Tarantino's first Western, or as he might say, a Southern, in which Christoph Waltz's German bounty hunter Dr. King Schultz teams up with Jamie Foxx's former slave Django to rescue the latter's wife from the clutches of Leonardo DiCaprio's villainous plantation owner Calvin Candy so a lot to tackle in this one yeah thoughts Helen I really really thoroughly enjoyed this I think it's it's a really interesting film for, from Tarantino's point of view in that it has all the kind of energy and um, visual you know vim and blood soaked antics frankly um, and humour of you know all of the, the films in his kind of uh, in his back catalogue but at the same time it, it actually never makes light of the slavery issues in it and actually is quite is at its most shocking not when there's you know blood exploding from everywhere essentially but more when it's showing the reality of people's lives um, under that under that regime and it's absolutely uh, shocking in those moment, moments great great performances Samuel L. Jackson is um, for me, the standout anyway. I'm, I'm, I genuinely would have put him up over Chris, Christoph Waltz, who I think is great. Mm. But Samuel L. Jackson in this plays the antithesis of, of every character he's ever played. Um, this this just horrendous individual. Um, and it's like nothing I've ever seen from him. And I thought that was, that was terrific. But, you know, uh, there isn't really a weak link in the cast. If I had one criticism, it would be that I think Kerry Washington's character was you know, underdeveloped to the point of nothingness. Mm-hmm. But she was m- meant more as, you know, the symbol, the prize, mm-hmm. whatever else, than, than an actual character. So maybe that's inevitable. Um, so, yeah, th- thought it was great. I agree. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I loved it also. Uh, DiCaprio is terrific as well. We should mm. mention him. And that's just an amazing character. I'd like such a bizarre kind of... He's this character who loves... France or the affectations of, of things that are French to try and make himself seem more sophisticated, but he can't speak a word of French, so you're not supposed to actually speak French to him. And he, he's just a great kind of, sort of southern gentleman, but underneath it you have this very, very dark mm. character who kind of starts to come out, and it, there's a fascinating relationship between him and Stephen, the Samuel L. Jackson character. Don Johnson is terrific yeah. in this. Um, there's just so, you know, there's the Tarantino thing of having these great little parts the sort of self-contained sort of five ten minute things and then it moves to something else I thought uh, some people have griped about the length of the film I think I wasn't bored at all I can see how the middle section of the film the actual getting to Candyland plantation could have been a bit speedier but for me it was one of those films that you just kind of luxuriate in and enjoy the dialogue and the the music is absolutely terrific as well I agree yeah, tell me about the music because I know that they used the Django theme from Sergio Corbucci yeah, Western yeah, twice it, I believe it kicks off with that there's a there's a fantastic montage in the opening. Probably my favourite bit of the film is the first five minutes. It's yeah. just this uh, procession of slaves chained up, moving across the landscape and the beautiful landscape. And he does these funky zoom ins with the camera and the music's terrific. Yeah, really great start to the film. But he's also got contemporary music. There's a track by 
help me out with this, Helen. I've forgotten. <laughs> Gosh, I've been listening to the soundtrack. Chris, you've been listening to I've it. got the soundtrack right here. Anyway, Roddy. that's my email. Oh, no, wait, that's Roddy Wimble album. Uh, <laughs> yep, no, here it is. Yes. Winged by James Russo. No, that's dialogue. Uh, sorry, which one? You, you, there you go. <laughs> have it. There you go. Yeah, so there's Tupac, there's uh, Rick Ross, um, there was a Frank Ocean track which was recorded but didn't actually make it into the film, But and there's a lot of Morricone, who has actually written a, an amazing track for the film as well, so it's very Tarantino all over the place musically, but it works. Yeah, it really I does. I can think of a bad musical moment. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fantastic, and I agree with you, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Stephen, is terrifying. There's a sequence in the movie where he goes up to Carrie Washington's character, and she literally trembles with fear as he approaches, and she goes, he goes, why are you, why are you trembling? She goes, because you're scary, and he is very, very scary. Uh, he's a true villain of the piece in mm. many, many ways. Uh, it's a fantastic film. Uh, I'm not going to say a return to form for Tarantino, because I love The Glorious Bastards, and... Uh, um, but he's definitely on an upward curve from the disappointing death proof, I would say. Oh, people, massively. People are a little bit divided on Jamie Foxx. I've seen reviews that really? saying that he's, you know, possibly the weak link in the, the cast. I don't think so at all. I was actually, when I was watching it, I was thinking, what would Will Smith have been like? Because Tarantino was in talks with Will Smith for a while to play Django. But I thought Jamie Foxx was great. He's mm. kind of the still centre because you've got these, you know, quite larger than life characters around him who are kind of trying to takes take the screen if you will but he still holds it even even without doing very much i think he holds your attention yeah there's a definite feeling that you know for the first hour and a half or so that you know django was almost secondary to, to king schultz mm. in, in, the, in the story because christoph waltz is fantastic in this there's a feeling that he may play second fiddle for a large, large part of the film to christoph waltz um but and he comes into his own definitely mm. towards the end there's a real reason why it's called django and jane uh so brilliant. we get that four stars i must say yes. i must say there is a weak link in the cast and it is Quentin Tarantino. Uh, next up is The Sessions, a true story of Mark O'Brien, a man paralysed by polio who hires a sex surrogate played by Helen Hunt to help him lose his virginity. So thoughts on this, Philip? I liked it. I didn't love it, love it. Um, this is a film that is based on a true story and it's, it's added authenticity from Ben Lewin, the Aussie director, who himself is a polio, someone that had suffered from polio, um, based on a true story of a, of a poet called Mark O'Brien, set in the 80s. Um, it could have been one of those Kirk Lazarus films from Tropic Thunder. It could have been like the Iron Lung Lothario or something like that, just really tasteless. Or it could have been the big Oscar-y emotional. It's neither of those things. It's pitch somewhere in the middle it's nice performance by John Hawkes under Pinsey he underplays if anything um, he doesn't play it for the big emotion it's a nice gentle performance that probably didn't help him pick up an Oscar nomination um, but is very very strong Helen Hunt did get an Oscar nomination she's equally good um, and uh, William H. Macy as well worth mentioning mm. um, great performances lovely little story unassuming I would say is a good word for it but you know in its own way kind of heartbreaking yeah. we gave it three stars I, I think I'd agree with that I thought it was quite blandly directed but the performances are fantastic it's quite funny and sweet mm. and affecting in its own way um, lots of people obviously talk about how brave Helen Hunt is mm. uh, and the for brave in, here read naked read naked a lot and it's interesting for example that the movie doesn't go the full hog with um, John Hawkes' character but in terms of nudity mm. Mm. anyway but yeah, yeah it's a, it's a, I guess you know it isn't coy though in, in the way it depicts no, sex in no, any way not. it's very candid about it which I liked um, you often don't see that bluntness um, and I appreciate it. it's kind of an adult take on it and uh, I think Ben Lewin should take some credit for that you're right it's you know it's not particularly dazzling in terms of the the but direction that might be more to do with budget constraints yeah it's a small movie budget. with a small budget and it's yeah. played really well on the festival circuit and it's played well with the Oscar with the, with the Academy 
um, and it's really worth your time I, I, I wouldn't go any further than than, than, a, than a recommendation though I wouldn't I wouldn't rave about this film yeah. three stars is a recommendation we say it every week uh, also out this week is VHS the found footage anthology that boasts contributions from some of the hottest directorial names in horror including uh, Adam Wingard and Ty West people like that that's four stars uh, we've got the new Michael Winterbottom film Every Day the thrilling dance documentary Ballroom Dancer and the 3D-ish reissue of uh, Pixar's Monsters Inc which is very well done is it? yes there you go um, would you, we've given it four stars on the website but I'm sure Helen you'd go five wouldn't you? Uh, well I, I wrote that review but um, what? <laughs> but only because I didn't feel I could completely change the star rating from the original star rating that we gave. I love I love Monsters Inc. I I cry every time at the end when she goes Kitty and he's all. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> okay. So maybe you could name your kid Doctor. That would be a, a bird Lassiter Doctor O'Hara. Yeah. Doctor O'Hara. Doctor O'Hara. There we go. Did uh, you know Pete Doctor's dad is an actual doctor? Doctor Doctor. Yeah. That's amazing. Carry on. That's amazing. Where's Stanton on that list? I forgot him. Stanton. Well, Anchorage. It's a good name. It's a good name. Baby number two. That's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week when we'll be reviewing the likes of Lincoln, Zero Dark Thirty, and The Last Stand. And we'll be joined by... I'm going to need a drum roll for this. If you've got any drums, roll them now. Actually, that really affects the sound. Let's not do a drum roll. Uh, Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's right. (gasps) Never heard of him. Uh, No, he's an Austrian actor. He shows a lot of promise. All right, okay. Up and coming star. Yeah. So anyway, get to the pod booth, etc., etc. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. Goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Goodbye from Nicholas. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. See you next week. Goodbye.